Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week a continuation of my Faces of Anti-Fascism series, or, you know, Famous Anti-Fascists. This is me chronicling and profiling important and famous and well-known anti-fascists in the history of the world. Today, I'm talking about Paul Robeson, a bass baritone singer, opera star, actor, American football player, lawyer, and lifelong anti-fascist. Paul Robeson was born in 1898 in New Jersey to a black father who was a reverend who had been born into enslavement and escaped enslavement when he was younger, and a mixed-race Quaker mother. His father was a priest at a local black church which had white financiers. They disapproved of some of his messaging and essentially forced him to leave the church. This caused a lot of financial hardship for Robeson and his family, especially following the death of his mother. His father was able to preach again at some churches, but the financial hardship essentially never ended. That is, until Robeson got a scholarship to Rutgers University, which is the State University of New Jersey. Robeson was the third black student to ever attend Rutgers University and the only one while he was there. At Rutgers, Robeson played football, that is American football, for Rutgers, but was also on the debate team and also sang for money. He was unable to join the Glee Club because while the Glee Club did not have any official rules against black people joining, you did need to attend all-white mixers in order to participate. Robeson faced and overcame massive prejudice and discrimination at the school. He was elected valedictorian of his class and used his speech in order to call out anti-black racism in the United States and at Rutgers specifically. Afterwards, he moved to New York to attend NYU, but then left NYU to go to Columbia Law School. He continued to be a law student while also starting an acting career in the 1920s. At the same time, he was also being recruited to join the NFL, a team that doesn't exist anymore in Akron, Ohio. He did finish law school, uh, but only practiced law briefly before leaving the work due to the racism that he faced while practicing law. In 1925, his acting career took off, and this is where Robeson's life started to take the turns that would eventually lead him to be one of the biggest and most famous anti-racists, anti-fascists, and anti-imperialists in the early 20th century. So in 1925, he had a breakout role as Emperor Jones in a revival of a play called The Emperor Jones, which is a play about a black man from the United States who gets in some trouble with the law and runs away only to establish himself as a dictator on a small Caribbean island, fictional in the world of the play, but obviously it's a stand-in for Haiti. This was an extremely successful role. Robeson would continue to play Emperor Jones for many years throughout his career in revivals, moving it to London, etc., etc. This success in New York led to many more singing and acting roles. Specifically, in the late 1920s, he made a lot of trips to London to act and did some extremely successful and very famous recording work. Here he recorded probably the song that you've heard if you've ever heard a Paul Robeson recording. This is Old Man River. Uh, it's an extremely deep voice intoning this song. It's just absolutely incredible. Like, 
Robeson's voice was so enormous and sonorous, it's, 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 it's almost hard to describe. Uh, when you're done listening to this episode, look up Old Man River. Robeson's recording is probably the one you're going to find. He continued to work in acting and moved into film in 1933 in the United States, where he starred in the filming of The Emperor Jones, his breakout role. He was the first actor to play a starring role in a major film in the United States, something that would not happen for quite some further time. He then returned to London because of the racism that he experienced in the United States. He spent most of this part of his career trying to leave and be away from the United States. The 30s is also the real crux of his political transformation. Prior to this, Robeson was, of course, an anti-racist. He spoke out against anti-black racism in the United States. But in the 1930s, he began to connect this and connect the racism in the United States with wider political problems outside. In the 1930s, he got involved in socialism, which at the time was deeply inflected with Soviet influences, of course, because the Soviet Union was relatively new at the time. In the early 1930s, he went to Moscow and said that there he felt like a person rather than a racial epithet for the first time in his life. He started to learn about the racial politics of the Nazis in earnest and also began to be interested in African culture as such, so culture as practiced by people who were physically living in Africa. This turn towards an anti-imperialist politics really took fruit in the late 1930s, where he began his career as a sort of propagandist artist in earnest. In the late 1930s, Robeson, like a lot of anti-imperialists and anti-fascists and anti-racists in the world, all of their eyes were locked on Spain during Spain's civil war. Now, Spain in the 1920s and 1930s had been run by a Republican government. But in the mid-1930s, there was an uprising by fascists and by militarists and by monarchists, so the right-wing broadly, and they were trying to establish a different right-wing conservative government in that country. This is called the Spanish Civil War, and the leftists were the side of the Republicans, and the fascists were the side of Franco, the, the eventual victors, unfortunately. Robeson, of course, opposed this, like many other people who agreed with him, and he did a lot of fundraising and advocacy work for the Republican side. He actually met Albert Einstein at a play that was organized in defense of the Spanish Republican side, and they began a lifelong friendship and, you know, pen pal relationship over their hatred of fascism. He began to meet bigger and bigger players on the international left and progressive circles as a result of these stances. For example, he met Jawaharlal Nehru, the future president of India and close collaborator with Gandhi. This is long before India's independence. India was, of course, still a colony of the United Kingdom in the late 1930s, remember. By 1939-1940, Robeson and his family fled back to the United States away from the impending war in Europe, worried about a possible invasion of the United Kingdom by Germany. They were right to be afraid of this, you know, not just in a general sort of way like everybody was, but the Nazis specifically had Robeson on a list of people that they wanted to capture and or kill if they eventually invaded the United Kingdom because of his stature and his effectiveness as an anti-fascist propagandist. Robeson, unfortunately, in the United States, found racism exactly the same as it was when he left the United States in the 1930s, a deeply, structurally, violently racist place that nevertheless pretended to be opposed to fascism because of its racism. 
Robeson continued to work in anti-racism in the United States. Specifically, he tried to get bans on, you know, preventing people of color from being guests in hotels. He tried to work towards the integration of Major League Baseball, for example. This was also while he continued his anti-imperialist work, such as by advocating Chinese independence against Japan. Remember that in World War II, Japan had invaded China in starting in the early 1930s, beginning World War II much earlier than it did in Europe. Indeed, Robeson was one of the first people to officially perform and record the song which would eventually become the national anthem of the People's Republic of China, the March of the Volunteers. After the war, Robeson began to work as a leftist and anti-fascist more earnestly and like just like specifically. He worked closely with the Communist Party USA, a Stalinist party, although he apparently never officially joined it after the war. This led him to be excluded from many opportunities, uh, an exclusion in the United States which would essentially last for the rest of his life. He and in many organizations that he was involved in were also put, drawn up on a list of subversive organizations that was created by the Attorney General in the late 1940s. As a result of this exclusion from a lot of artistic opportunities and also from the press in the United States, he traveled back to Europe and eventually also to the USSR in 1949. While in the USSR in 1949, he tried to visit friends from his time there earlier, only to learn that some of them had been killed in Stalin's purges and that the others were slated for death. He kept that a secret to avoid hurting the left in the United States and Europe. In the 1950s, Robeson continued to speak out against fascism, such as the military coup in Greece, which had fascist inflections, and the continued fascist government of Franco's Spain. However, in 1950, he was in the United States when he was making these statements, and that meant that the United States was able to essentially confine him to the country by refusing to grant him a passport. When Robeson appealed to the State Department and tried to figure out why it was that he was being held in the United States and, you know, not being given a passport, despite, again, the fact that he was a massively famous international star with a huge following in the English-speaking world and also in Europe. So he was denied a passport specifically by the State Department, they said, because he was talking about the treatment of black people uh, in the United States and that he was spreading this terrible, terrible, awful news, this truth about the United States internationally. This, of course, did not stop Robeson from continuing his anti-racist and anti-fascist work. He continued as a collaborator with his longtime friend and collaborator W.E.B. Du Bois, a, you know, stalwart figure in the 20th century, the early 20th century civil rights movement. He and Du Bois presented, for example, the United Nations with a document called We Charge Genocide, which did just that. This was in the wake of the creation of the term genocide as a way to describe the way the Nazis behaved in Europe towards Jewish people and towards other people whom they were trying to exterminate from the European continent. We Charge Genocide alleged that the United States was doing the same thing to black people. Robeson continued to do some more recording in the late 1950s and had something of a comeback tour in the very late 1950s, you know, 58, 59. This was especially in England, where he was the most famous and most successful. Although, again, his being excluded from markets in the United States meant that it was hard for him to get places to sing and places to record in the United Kingdom as well. A lot of these recordings and concerts were done kind of like on the sly a little bit, you know, or he was working with exclusively leftist or worker organized 
communal record labels and things like that. However, he did, in the late 1950s, have one of his most successful and famous concerts. This was at the site, still under construction, of the Sydney Opera House. This made Paul Robeson, by some accounts, the first official big-name, you know, artist to perform at the Sydney Opera House. In the 1960s, Robeson had managed to leave the United States again, and he was traveling around. He spent some time in Moscow in the early 1960s, and there had a terrible mental health scare that involved an attempt of suicide. Paul Robeson's son and many other people in his life were really astonished by what they saw as an extremely sudden mental health decline, and they blamed the CIA. They thought that the CIA had somehow drugged him or done some sort of psychological conditioning or had arranged some sort of you know, life trajectory things that were deteriorating his mental health so severely. Within a few years, he had slid into a terrible depression. He underwent some really disturbing mid-20th century style psychiatric treatment, you know, drugs and electroshock without any accompanying therapy or talk therapy of any kind. This led him to slide further and further into depression. Starting in the mid-60s, he essentially never performed again. He remained in the zeitgeist. People knew about him and many civil rights leaders in the 1960s. For example, Baird Rustin, the person who organized the March on Washington, wanted him to be a part of the civil rights movement in the United States. However, Robeson declined because Baird Rustin demanded that he denounce communism in order to do so. Robeson was a staunch communist and refused to back down from his political beliefs. In his mind, communism and anti-racism and anti-fascism were one and the same. Robeson's health continued to deteriorate throughout the 1960s and 1970s as he lived with relatives living off of savings and the money that he had gained earlier in the century. He died January 23rd, 1967, from complications relating to a stroke, beloved internationally by anti-fascists, anti-racists, and anti-imperialists everywhere. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 Minutes of Fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Hist of the Right, that's H-I-S-T of the Right, and Fascism 15, that one's spelled out. I'm also on Blue Sky at 15-M-I-N-S-O-F-F-A-S-C. All right, thanks very much, and I'll talk to you Thursday.